0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to today's conversation about using plants to make meat. My guest today is Dr. Sue Klapfoltz, VP of Nutrition at Impossible Foods. She has both a medical degree and a PhD in genetics, and is one of the smartest people I know. Prior to joining Impossible Foods, Dr. Klapfoltz had an incredibly diverse career as a scientist, doctor, teacher, editor, and writer. To set the stage for this conversation, I wanted to share a bit of background on Impossible Foods. Impossible is one of the fastest growing, most innovative companies in the plant-based food space. The company was founded in 2011 by Dr. Pat Brown, a world-famous biochemist, and continues to be a highly science-driven company full of brilliant people with big ideas. Their products are designed to closely mimic animal products and are not necessarily targeted to vegans. In fact, Many vegans who don't like the idea of eating meat find them too close for comfort. If you've never tried an Impossible Burger, you are in for quite an experience. In today's conversation, Dr. Klapfoltz and I will discuss how plant and animal proteins differ and what this means for your health. We'll also discuss common fears and misconceptions around frankenfoods and why using science to innovate is a good thing, not a red flag. For the sake of disclosure, I feel I should mention that I have a personal connection, though no financial connection, to Impossible Foods. I did my PhD in genetics at Stanford in the Lab of Impossible's founder, Dr. Pat Brown. Ironically, Pat was known at the time as a pure academic with zero interest in working in industry. He was not only an amazing academic mentor, but also inspired me to re-examine my consumption of animal products. When I finished my PhD in 2006, Pat had begun stepping back and asking himself how he could have the biggest impact on the planet. His answer was simple, to eliminate animal agriculture. That mission remains at the core of Impossible Foods. According to their website, we're on a mission to save meat and earth. I'm truly honored that Dr. Klapfoltz has taken the time to share her insights today and ask you to join me in listening with an open mind. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sue Clapfolds. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. To get us started, can you describe your role at Impossible Foods and give a bit about your background?
1: Sure. I'm the Vice President of Nutrition, Health, and Food Safety. And my team is responsible for making sure that our products are as nutritious and safe as possible. We cover everything from creating the nutritional fact panels, answering questions from customers about allergens or different ingredients, to doing microbiological studies of our foods and ingredients.
0: And your background, what did you do before Impossible and how did you end up focused on this field?
1: Yeah. So before I, I studied medicine, and I have also have a PhD in genetics, and I have had quite a, a varied background working in molecular biology. I've worked at a startup biotech company called Cell Genesis. and I, we created actually my team and was did the cloned human immunoglobulin genes in yeast to put them into embryonic stem cells and create human monoclonal antibodies. So a bunch of different kinds of things. I got interested in Impossible Foods through Pat Brown, who is my husband. He founded the company and I was asked to help out and I ordered the company's first centrifuge. I just did whatever was helpful. And then it looked like the cheese team needed a little help because it had consisted of some very creative chefs, but who didn't have the scientific rigor necessary for doing reproducible experiments and making sure we kept good records. I ended up leading the cheese team at Impossible, to make a long story short. And I did that for about four years. And then when it looked like we were getting close to launching our first Impossible Burger, we realized we needed a nutrition and health entity at the company. So Mm -hmm. I started that department.
0: That's a good segue to something I wanted to talk about is Impossible's very science-driven approach. So the company has a lot of scientists. And I wonder if you could speak to how you harness the power of science to innovate and maybe the way that you're different from other companies.
1: I think one of the ways that we're different is that we hire from very diverse areas of science. So our scientists come from backgrounds in engineering, food science, physics, chemistry, sensory science, many different disciplines. And I think that we have people who have been in the food industry before, but many who haven't, who've only been in academia. And I think that that mixture of people from the industry and those coming in with fresh ideas uh, leads to a lot of creativity, thinking outside the box, trying new things, not accepting the status quo. And I think we built a very strong research platform from that.
0: So when the Impossible team starts with a challenge like, let's try to build a burger from plants, how do you approach that?
1: So we look at the, for a burger, we look at what makes a burger a burger. We look at beef. We look at it from a molecular level. We look at what are the flavors, what are the flavor compounds, aroma compounds that are present in beef when it's raw and beef when it's cooked. We look at the textural aspects of beef. How firm is it? How springy is it? What happens when it's cooked? Does it release fat? Does it release water? How much? We look at the color transition when beef is cooked. We look at the nutrients. We look at, that's certainly my area, look at the nutritional attributes of that product. And then we taking all that information we take ingredients from plants and using what's known about those ingredients or what we figure out about those ingredients in the lab we put together prototypes and we build upon those prototypes until we have something that is palatable and then, then something that tastes good and then we start doing a lot of sensory analysis so we do a lot with consumer panels external panels, internal panels. We have really great sensory scientists at the company and that's our basic approach. We want to make sure that we match or exceed the nutritional qualities of any product that we're replacing. We definitely don't want to create a plant-based world where people are deficient in uh, important nutrients so that we pay a lot of attention to that but we also need to be able to match the texture, the mouthfeel, the color, the aromas. And in addition to all that, we need to have a robust supply chain. We need to find ingredients that we can buy in quantities we need to succeed in the market. We need to make sure that our products don't just look and smell and taste like beef, but we also have to make sure they handle like beef in the kitchen. So that's an area that involves a lot of work with chefs, and consumers to give us feedback on that. Does it have the same raw handling? If you put the an Impossible Burger on the grill, will it fall through the grates in the grill, or will it stay intact? Things like that. Those are all important. That sounds like a lofty challenge. It is because it's hard to. We have to balance them all. We also have to balance the cost. We have to make it cost effective. If it's super expensive. We're not going to succeed in selling it. So it's always a give and take, always a balancing act. So it makes it exciting and challenging.
0: So let's zero in a bit on the nutrition side and talk about some of the similarities and differences between plant and animal proteins, you know, at a really deep level. So, how do you think about plant versus animal proteins? That's a great question. I know a lot of people are
1: concerned that plant proteins don't offer the same high quality protein that's found in animal products. So first I'll say that animal products do contain very high quality protein, meaning that they have all of the nine essential amino acids in amounts and proportions that are optimal for maintaining health and also for, for maintaining a growth and development during stages where that's needed. So proteins from animals tend to be excellent examples of protein. However, many plants also have excellent high quality proteins. One of them is soy. Soy truly rivals animal proteins for its quality. It also has a very balanced, good amino acid composition that is similar to that of beef, and it's also highly digestible, which is another aspect of protein quality. Other plants may have lower amounts of one or more of the essential amino acids. But most plants have most of all the essential amino acids and just perhaps a lower level of one. Another plant protein will have a lower level of another and so on. So that if you eat a bunch of different plant proteins in the course of a day, you get all the protein, especially all the amino acids that you need to build proteins and to thrive.
0: One of my most popular articles I published on Medium was busting the myth of incomplete plant-based proteins. In reality, the only way to fall short on a specific amino acid is to basically only eat a single food all day. Like as long as you're getting enough protein, period, it's almost impossible without eating a single food day in, day out.
1: That's true. And you could even, I would argue, eat a single food all day but you would get have to take in so much protein to get enough of that limiting amino acid that it, it probably would mean you'd have a very unbalanced diet overall and that wouldn't be good.
0: This is an issue that could be relevant globally when malnutrition is an issue, but in the Western world, when we are getting way more than enough food and a lot of protein in general, it is almost impossible to fall short on amino acids so it frustrates to see how overblown that is. I also do a lot of trumpeting how wonderful soy is and and I did a little mini research review on building muscle and soy versus animal proteins and it's absolutely clear there's no difference if you give two people the same amount of protein, one from soy and one from animal sources that they build the same amount of muscle if they follow the same workouts.
1: Yeah, I think soy is a fantastic protein and very abundant, inexpensive
0: and as nutritionally complete as uh, animal proteins. I'm sure we'd have a whole conversation about the virtues of soy and all the myths around soy, but suffice it to say that you and I both have done our homework and we consume it ourselves and feed it to our children. So that says a lot, right? Absolutely. Since I know you know this field in such great detail, can you speak to how protein quality is measured objectively?
1: Yes, there are a number of different ways to measure protein quality. I believe in Canada, if I'm not wrong, you use PER, which is determined by feeding rats a particular protein that you're interested in knowing its quality or how good it is at sustaining growth. And you compare it to casein, which is a, the gold standard. And that comparison of one protein to another on how it allows rats to gain weight when that's their primary protein source is one way of looking at protein quality other methods including the PDCAAS and the DIAAS methods are ones that look at both protein digestibility and amino acid composition so amino acid composition is pretty straightforward to measure just looking at the amount of each specific amino acid and particularly the essential amino acids relative to the total amount of protein that's present. Digestibility is usually performed by doing an animal study of one kind or another, either feeding rats a protein and looking at how much nitrogen is present in the food at the start and how much nitrogen comes out in their feces. That's one way of looking at how much nitrogen as a surrogate for protein was actually absorbed and digested. So if it's absorbed, and does, it's assumed that it's digested and used. That's also an oversimplification because it's possible to absorb protein and not be able to use it because it's altered in some way. And then there's also methods where pigs are fed protein-containing foods and they have a cannula in their ileum that removes the digesta and, again, One can look at the amino acids that went in and the amino acids that came out, but at an earlier stage before it actually goes into the large intestine and comes out as waste. So that is a little better in the sense that it has fewer complications because we have bacteria in our guts, animals do, that will generate amino acids and also consume amino acids and protein.
0: So you have that going on and that kind of confounds the results a little bit. So how do food companies actually put this into practice? Do you just look up in a table that soy has been fed to rats and this is what happened?
1: Yes. So that's, I think, what most people do. For a complex food that has many different kinds of protein in it, like the Impossible Burger has soy, potato protein, yeast protein from yeast extract, for example, and small amounts of protein from other sources, You actually do look up in a table to see what is the protein quality or the amino acid composition. Actually, we do that ourselves. We send each individual protein ingredient to the lab. We get an amino acid composition back, and then we can calculate percentages of each essential amino acid in each ingredient. And then we do look up in tables to find out what is the digestibility of soy protein, potato protein. Yeast protein and so on, and we use that in a formula that's approved by the FDA to basically calculate a PDCAAS. This PDCAAS value—it's a protein
0: digestibility corrected amino acid score. That's what that stands for. So we've discussed the amino acid balance, and we've discussed this digestibility thing. Maybe can you speak to sort of the continuum there and where soy sits and the rest of your proteins, and maybe. The extent to which there's a practical consideration for people eating plants.
1: Yes. So most plant proteins are fairly fairly well digested, and the digestibility is usually in the range of 70 to 90 percent or higher. Whereas most animal proteins are in the 90%. So they tend to have higher digestibility. Cooking can also affect digestibility and the type of cooking, so so that makes it even a little more complicated. Soy has a very high digestibility. 95 to 99% depending on its form so we use soy protein concentrate and soy protein isolate i think we have a digestibility of 95% or 0.95 for our products and then the amino acid quality for the soy we use is is usually a little higher than 1 so when you multiply that times 0.95 you end up with a pretty high pdcas But our product is much more complex than just soy, because we have other proteins in there that aren't as high quality as soy, that lowers the overall percent daily value.
0: Yeah, I was reading about these protein qualities and digestibilities at some point, and it was quite striking to me the difference between peas and pea protein. And so the processing can really, you mentioned cooking, but processing in general can really basically do some of the digestion for you to make it more accessible.
1: That's correct. And there's some anti-nutritional factors that are present in plants, like trypsin inhibitors, which inhibit protein digestion. Those are very prevalent in potato and also in soy. Processing usually inactivates them. That's just one example.
0: But just backing it up a level, like, what do you say to someone who's used to eating animal products and is concerned that even if they're technically getting the same amount from a plant-based burger, should I still be worried that it's somehow subpar?
1: Well, I think that when we compare one food to another, there are so many factors that a person should consider. In fact, I know there was a movement, I don't not gonna be able to tell you the details of what organization was trying to do it, but they were trying to come up with a new kind of PDCAS that not only looked at the protein quality, but also looked at the environmental impact and sustainability so there's so there's many ways to make choices if you're deciding between meat from an animal or meat made from plants. I think that protein is one, but as you had said, we are not in this country at least. Protein is not a nutrient of concern. Most people get enough protein in their diets. The other things to compare are the other nutrients, micro and macronutrients that are present. How much fat is present? And then what is that fat? How much saturated fat? Uh, How much unsaturated fat? Is there trans fat? Is there cholesterol? Those are all important when considering getting an optimal diet. And then micronutrients, iron. And in the case of the Impossible Burger, we have heme iron, just like in meat, animal meat. So that's highly bioavailable iron. That's one thing to consider. And then there's lots of vitamins that are present in meat. You want to make sure that they're also present in your plant burger, unless you get plenty in your diet anyway. So I think we don't eat one food in isolation of everything else. We eat If we eat a soy burger or base burger, or if we eat a, a cow beef burger, then I think that we're still eating all the other things along with those in our diet throughout the day. So I don't think it's good to get too fixated on what this one particular product can provide unless you're relying highly on that product to provide something in your diet that you otherwise wouldn't get.
0: Yeah, when I've talked in the past about plant versus animal proteins and burgers, for example, I try to emphasize the importance of the whole package, right? When you compare two foods the actual proteins between beef burger and impossible burger are going to be remarkably similar. You're getting the same building blocks of amino acids in those two foods, just in slightly different proportions. But the rest of the package surrounding that protein is going to be very different. And when you see all of these epidemiological studies showing people on plant-based diets have good health outcomes, it's not the type of protein per se. It's what they come with, right? That's different.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes people refer to meat as a protein, but it's not. It contains protein, but it contains so much more. It contains lots of macro and micronutrients and all kinds of metabolites that may or may not have a positive or negative health impact. So I think most foods are extremely complex if you want to get down to the molecular level. And that's an area that is gaining great interest now is looking at the metabolomics of food. What are all the molecules that are present and what do they do and do we need them and in what proportions? It's an interesting new field.
0: Yeah. So I tend to just start at basic with comparing the nutrition facts, but you're saying there's this whole other level that's not even captured in the nutrition facts
1: that's right. And there was an interesting paper that came out. It actually came out last year but it was published this year by Van Vliet and colleagues at Duke University where they they looked at the impossible burger and they and compared it to grass-fed beef for all the metabolites that were present and they did a heat map to show the most top 50 metabolites or yeah, metabolites that were present in beef alone or the impossible burger alone and they went on to conclude which i think was somewhat simplistic that because the metabolites that you find are different and highly different between the two maybe 90% different and the then you can also come up with you know 25 that are unique to beef and 25 that are unique to the impossible burger that the impossible burger couldn't possibly replace animal beef because it's missing some of these metabolites but when you look at the metabolites which I've been doing with my team as sort of a team exercise we've taken that paper and we've taken all the metabolites that were unique to beef and we looked at what they really were and some of them are waste products like urea uric acid creatinine one of them was an animal feed biuret which is a nitrogen source that's fed to cows. It's not part of the human diet normally. Others were metabolites that humans make themselves. We need them and we make them. We don't need to get them from eating other mammals. So when you do a deep dive, and it is very useful and worthwhile to do these metabolomic comparisons, we might find that there are certain nutrients in beef that are lacking in our product. And what's beautiful about creating meat the way we do is that if we see something, a nutrient that's important for human health, whether it's in developed countries or in underdeveloped countries, you know, we see that there's a need for something extra to be in our product. We can add it. There's very little that we couldn't add to enhance the nutritional value of our food. And I think that's a real plus.
0: Yeah, actually, I had a guest I spoke with about mRNA vaccines, and apparently they use synthetically made cholesterol. So, I mean, it's just once you open up that toolkit, you can make whatever you need. That's right. I think
1: you can. And then, of course, there are plant sources that haven't been discovered or tapped yet as food ingredients. And I think that's, that's one thing that we do at our company is we try to also explore new plants to see if they would work well as ingredients for food because they have great proteins or they contain other micronutrients that are scarce. So we're always uh, we're always looking to see how we can make our food as healthy and nutritious as possible. Certainly we never want to be deficient in anything that the animal products are a good source of, but we also have the opportunity to have added value. We have folate, for example, folate that comes from the soy protein concentrate and also comes from yeast extract is abundant in our Impossible Burger. And that's a nutrient of interest, particularly to women during pregnancy. It's very important for neural development in the fetus. So it's just a bonus of some, we didn't design it that way, but this is a very desirable nutrient that is naturally present in our burger.
0: That's a good segue to talk to a common concern or criticism of these burgers is that they are processed and that this word processed has become a dirty word and anything that doesn't come straight from nature and has one ingredient must be harmful.
1: Well, I hear that a lot. I hear people say,
0: Your product tastes really
1: good, but it's processed. And I think, okay, the fact that it's processed is really a good thing. We are trying to make meat out of plants. And We're doing this because we're trying to combat the devastating effects of climate change on our planet, on our environment, on our species diversity. We're trying to do something really impactful and we know that we're not going to have this kind of impact if we feed people a whole food burger. So if we were, I mean, this is an extreme analogy, but if we were to take whole pieces of coconut flesh sunflower seeds, whole potatoes, soybeans, and root nodules from soy plants and mush them together (laughs) on a blend. (laughs) That would not change the needle on climate change. It would not be impactful at all. So we need to use processed ingredients. We need to use the ingredients that will allow us to recreate the sensory attributes of meat. But at the same time, I don't believe that because someone classifies the Impossible Burger as a processed food means it's at all in the same category as, let's say, a deep fried donut, which is very processed, but it's a junk food. So processed food doesn't mean junk food. And I think that's where the education is important. And also food processing can be a very powerful tool for improving food quality. Um, As you alluded to earlier, talking about digestibility, uh, just one example and in an ingredient we use is that we use potato protein isolate, and potato protein is actually a very high quality protein in terms of its amino acid composition. But you don't get much potato protein in a potato. Potato is is largely starch, and so by taking isolating the protein away from all this starch you get a really high quality ingredient that's useful. And a potato starch is abundant and the protein is actually a waste product of the potato starch industry. So here you're taking something very nutritious and using it in food.
0: I think it's it's good to just at this point, acknowledge why there's this belief that processed is bad. So these sort of broad stroke studies showing that people who consume more processed foods have poor health outcomes. So
1: Yes, absolutely. Because a lot of processed food, is unhealthy a lot of processed food is not unhealthy and there's all levels of processing from simple processing such as canning for example a he- you know heating canning chopping to coagulating cheese to isolating proteins and so on so there's all levels of processing that's for sure but a lot of foods when people talk about processed foods they're talking about foods that are very high in salt fat sugar and very low in nutrients Very low in fiber, very low in protein, very low in micronutrients. That would be your typical junk food, which almost always invariably junk food is processed.
0: I like to say there's sort of a balance of nutritional upsides and nutritional downsides in every food. And so where do you see as, you know, the nutritional upsides and downsides of an Impossible Burger?
1: Yeah. So for the downsides, these are things that we're working on. One of them would be saturated fat. Right now in the Impossible Burger, I'll just, we have a number of products that are newer on the market and just coming out, but I'll stick with the Impossible Burger. We have about the same amount of saturated fat as 80-20 beef, which is the most common cut of beef in in retail. So we would like to have less saturated fat than beef because we know that people are concerned, and rightly so, that Consuming high amounts of saturated fat is correlated with increased cardiovascular disease risk. And we know that if, if people replace saturated fat with unsaturated fats in their diet, they see a lowering of their cholesterol, their total and their uh, bad cholesterol. So we want, to, we want to lower the amount of saturated fat in our products. And our next generation Impossible Burger will actually have significantly reduced saturated fat. So we've been working very hard on that.
0: I think a lot of people are wondering, if you know it's not good for you, why use it? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, because we need it, because of the
1: textural properties that saturated fat has. We need some kind of fat that will stay solid at room temperature and give you nice little flecks of fat, just like animal beef has. I think it's important for the sensory attributes. And as much as we can lower it, we will. If we could replace it with some other form of fat that was healthier, we would. But as I was talking about earlier, it's a real balancing act, right? The product has to taste good. It has to be healthy. It has to be handleable. It has to be at a reasonable price. All of these things have to balance together. So if we removed all the saturated fat, we would not have as juicy and as
0: good a mouthfeel as we do now. I wanted to have that same perspective from you on sodium. So that's another criticism you get is, oh, there's more sodium in your burgers than in a beef burger and therefore it's bad for you.
1: Yes. First of all, in the impossible burger, we in a four ounce serving, we have sixteen percent of the daily value for sodium. And when a food has 20% or more of the daily value, it's considered a high-sodium food. So we're not actually considered a high-sodium food. And the daily value for sodium right now is 2,300 milligrams a day. So a person could eat an Impossible Burger, a serving which has about 330, I believe, uh, milligrams of sodium, and easily stay within the daily value for sodium and also stay within a low-sodium diet, stay within a diet that, let's say, is asking the person to have 1,500 milligrams of sodium a day. And also, I would point out that when people season hamburger meat to make a burger, the amount of salt added usually ends up giving them about the same amount of sodium as we have in the Impossible Burger. So I think that's important to note, Beef is naturally low in sodium. That's a good thing. It has, you know, just naturally all animal products are quite typically low in in sodium, but we are still working on lowering
0: the sodium because we care about what consumers think. Actually, one more thing on, on the sodium is that the amount of sodium in the patty of a fast food burger is actually only a small fraction of the total sodium. So I often recommend being very aware of the rest of the burger package.
1: Absolutely. If you go to a fast food restaurant and you get a meal, It's going to be packed with sodium, probably a lot of fat as well. Foods tend to be fried. You have salty toppings, ketchup, relishes, pickles. They're all loaded with sodium. If you cook at home, an Impossible Burger can fit into any kind of diet really well. But if you're going out for a fast food meal, you are going to get a lot of sodium there. And I think you're right. If we just reduce the amount to zero in our patty, a person would still get way more sodium than they would want to if they're actually watching their salt intake and sodium intake. But, you know, we're always paying attention to what the consumer wants. We care about that quite a lot. If people think something's unhealthy, we care about that, and we want to see if we can educate people, but at the same time make modifications if it will encourage a larger audience to try our products because if people don't give us a try, we're not going to replace beef and other animal
0: products. So the last sort of concern I wanted to speak to is using genetic engineering technology, for example, for your leg hemoglobin. Why do you do that and what do you say to those who are concerned about it?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that show me evidence that there's any harm or downside to using genetic engineering to create a yeast strain that makes a particular protein. And for that particular type of genetic modification, if you think about it, most people who eat cheese, consume genetically engineered rennet. So rennet comes from the guts of baby animals. And it's used, it's the reason that cheese curdles in the gut. It's used to coagulate cheese. It became unsustainable rennet is cloned into and expressed in microorganisms and i think about 85% or more of the cheese that people consume in north america is used with, is is made using genetically engineered rennet so it is common in the food system so that's one thing
0: yeah just to step back i don't think people realize that people make particular proteins in microorganisms because it's simply more efficient. My understanding is they do that with vanilla flavor or a bunch of flavors as well. So this is something that consumers are being exposed to way more than they realize. And it's well tested, well proven. There's no evidence nor any actual rationale for why it would be a health concern to make something that way, rather than the alternative of harvesting it from its natural source and harvesting a huge amount. Didn't you guys go down the path of trying to do this sort of just by huge fields of, of plants?
1: We did. So soy-like hemoglobin comes from the root nodules of soybean plants that have been colonized with nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And if you pull up a soybean, you'll see these little, a soybean plant, you'll see these little nodules, little balls attached to the roots. And if you cut them open, they're bright red because they contain soy-like hemoglobin, which is a protein very similar in its structure and function to myoglobin from muscle or hemoglobin from blood, it binds iron and it binds oxygen. And we wanted, once we discovered that heme, which is the the molecule that holds the iron in the protein, like hemoglobin, once we discovered how important heme was in catalyzing creation of flavor when meat is cooked, and causing the color transition from pink to brown when animal meat is cooked, we really wanted to have that in our products because we knew it was key to flavor creation in particular. So we started out by trying to pull up soybeans from fields and pull off the nodules from the roots and then isolate the protein from the root nodules. And it was very unsustainable. And we found a much more efficient way to do it, which was to clone the gene for soy-like hemoglobin into a yeast called *Pichia pastoris, ferment large quantities of that yeast, and allow those proteins to just be expressed in the yeast. But the protein is structurally identical to the protein you would get if you Dug up the root nodules and isolated the protein. The protein is not engineered it's the yeast strain that's engineered by putting in
0: the gene for the like hemoglobin protein that's a that's a great explanation. Thank you to wrap up things, I just wanted to give you a, an opportunity to speak to again back to the impossible mission and why you think that this type of product is so important for the planet. Thank you for that opportunity. I think it's important for the planet on so
1: many levels, and of course. One is climate change. We use so much less resources to create the Impossible Burger than goes into animal agriculture. We've lost 50% approximately of all the species on earth in the last 50 years due to climate change. A lot of this is due to deforestation. Animal agriculture takes up so much land and water. It's, it's unbelievable. And so of course that's a main concern of ours as a company. I'm also very concerned about all the public health implications of of animal agriculture, which is very, very tightly linked to the creation of multiple antibiotic-resistant organisms, the prevalence of foodborne illness from pathogens such as bacteria, even toxoplasmosis, which people associate with coming from cats and cat litter boxes, and it's a cause of congenital malformations and, and death. It actually comes very commonly from pork consumption. And the CDC considers toxo, I think they consider toxoplasmosis the second leading cause of foodborne death in the US. And so those are examples of where raising animals for food has led to the product to the creation of these organisms that not only are very prevalent but are increasingly difficult to treat because of the multiple antibiotic resistance. And finally, we have viral pandemics. Let's not, we're, we're in the midst of a terrible one right now, but if we look back at the uh, flu pandemic, swine flu pandemic of 2009, that one resulted, it killed over tw- 200,000 people in the world. And that seemed, I guess it almost, now it pales by comparison with, with COVID, sadly. But that was due to a virus that basically human influenza viral genes, avian genes, and pig influenza virus genes all recombined in a form that was quite virulent. And the same thing happens in in chickens, poultry. Poultry and pigs are reservoirs for influenza viruses that infect people. The viruses don't tend to kill these animals, but they tend to spread within the animal populations, mutate, can become extremely virulent, and then spread to people. And there's even one avian influenza virus called H5N1 that is, was created in poultry. It has occurred in human populations sporadically, but it has a mortality rate of about 50 or 60%. So it really would be horrible if that mu- virus mutated and became more virulent and spread throughout the human population. And it's such a concern that the CDC has stockpiled a vaccine against this virus. So, so there's so many human health threats that are caused by the way we raise animals for food.
0: Thank you, Dr. Clapfuls, for everything you do to bring amazing options to the public to help reduce our reliance on animals. There's a lot of good that can be done here. Oh, thank
1: you so much. It was a, it was an honor to be on your show. Thanks again.